This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. This episode is presented by Eco Soap Bank, a global humanitarian nonprofit that's working to save, sanitize, and supply recycled soap with hygiene education for the developing world. Hi, I'm Christopher Skinner, founder and principal of Schoolhouse Beauty's creative agency. And to me, it's a matter of storytelling. Storytelling has been around since the beginning of time. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter, and I'm a true believer that it should always be about the story. Craft a good story and people will believe, align, follow, and support. In an age of omni-channel brand experiences and digital disruption, unlocking story thinking has never been more important. Storytelling is central to the human experience. It's how we explain and make sense of the world. The best stories create a visceral connection. There's nothing more impressive than a vision well-executed, guided by intuition, that results in a compelling narrative and commercial success. Christopher Skinner, the founder and principal of beauty creative agency, Schoolhouse, has become one of the industry's must-known names in beauty when it comes to building strategies, brand creative, and immersive environments. And he has a story to tell. So Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I've been looking forward to this. I'm glad we could make the the schedules coordinate, if you will. I'm just going to dive right in. Let's do it. I'm super excited. Yeah. So many entrepreneurs, founders, executives got their start on the sales floor. And I love sharing those stories for a number of reasons. One, because they're obviously inspirational for those people kind of grinding it out in retail right now. But I think it's also an important reminder of of how critical the role of the front line at retail plays in the beauty ecosystem. So can you share a little bit about how you got the beauty bug and the the impetus for launching Schoolhouse? Yeah, well, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I started at retail. And before beauty, I, I actually started my career in retail as a greeter at Restoration Hardware. And I was absolutely horrible. Um, <laughs> I was very shy. I, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was afraid someone was going to ask me where a certain hinge was. And I would not be able to find it, which happened to me multiple times. But I I was always drawn to retail just because it felt more theatrical. And that's my background. I grew up doing theater. And so I I almost saw the mall as these different sets of these different brands kind of bringing you into the beach side or to a country home. And, um, And I was just always drawn to kind of being an actor inside that world. Um... I was studying at Savannah College of Art and Design, and uh, I was looking for some supplemental income, and Sephora was hiring a stock associate over the holidays, and this was probably 2003, Um, and I went and interviewed and got the role, and basically my job was to come in at 9 p.m. and leave at around 4 a.m., and I would clean clean all of the, the 
you know, places that people were dumping tissues and used mascara wands. And I would stock all of the shelves and, you know, make sure that the store was dressed appropriately uh, for the holiday rush. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And, and it was hard for me to explain at the moment why, because, you know, I'm like cleaning up used lipsticks on tissue um, at night. But I just really loved the product and the people. And ultimately, I, I just begged for them to find me a position um, once that holiday rush was over. Um, and so they, they did. And I ended up sort of overseeing events and animations. I mean, they made up things for me to do pretty much. And this was down in Georgia. And uh, I, I really stayed with them for as long as I could. And I, I worked on the, on the floor at Sephora for about four to five years in a variety of different roles. Um, eventually I moved to New York when they opened their 76 and Broadway location. And I got to sell Bernadette Peters an eyeliner once. It's probably my most notable moment. Um, and uh, she's very small. And <laughs> it, I just, I never was really great at sort of wanting to be the makeup artist or the kind of lead of skincare. I loved all of the education. You know, I sat in on all of the education of, for all the brands that they would come in and bring donuts and bagels, et cetera. But there was just something about sort of that final transaction. And it, there was also something about this exchange of passion. Because what I love about the beauty consumer is they, they sometimes know more than we know. And they come to the table with that. And they demand that you sort of reach their level, give them what they're looking for. And we've seen that just completely increase as obviously direct-to-consumer brands have come into play. Social media has come into play. There's been more platforms for people to speak out and, and talk about beauty and influence of that in their lives. And so, you know, I really just, I, I climbed the ranks at Sephora and then ended up my first sort of corporate role was at Space and K Apothecary overseeing um, design and creative for the U.S. Um, portion of the, of the retailer when they launched in the U.S. And to be honest, they really took a risk on me. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. And they saw the passion that I had for design and creative. And that's what I had studied at Savannah College of Art and Design. And also this sort of passion for beauty and beauty storytelling and brands and the consumer. And they plucked me and put me into this role. And really from there, it just that opportunity took me to where I am today. And a lot of starts and stops, a lot of, you know, in over my head, a lot of I want to give up moments, um, but ultimately pushing through and having people, you know, like incredible mentors at Fresh or Space and K that really just carried me into what I'm doing now. And launching Schoolhouse really for me was a multiple pronged you know, reason. I, first of all, was always sort of in these very entrepreneurial settings. I mean, Sephora under LVMH, LVMH is very entrepreneurial in their own culture. You know, they let each brand really figure it out. There's not really a lot of shared services and you're not sort of conforming to LVMH ways of thinking outside of, you know, their methodology for brand building. So with Sephora and, the, and then Fresh, I was really allowed to sort of learn and grow. And also with Fresh and Space and K, I was around founders all the time. And, you know, we were launching, I remember meeting Vicky Sai, the founder of Tatcha, working at Space and K, and we launched her with her blotting papers on our cash wrap. And I remember working with her on a small cash wrap display. And you just, it, you become obsessed with the founder entrepreneurial energy. 
And so Schoolhouse is an opportunity, one, to like allow a platform for these founders and entrepreneurs to have a place where they can plug in and us to build their vision with them. Um, but also, I think a little bit of myself having an entrepreneurial sort of bug in me wanting to do something of my own. And then I think lastly, as an industry and just in, in corporate culture, you, you tend to become siloed. And all of a sudden, the industry or the culture that you're a part of is determining your future. And I, and I, that always rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I always knew that I could do more than what I was being asked. And I remember a, a critical moment. I met with a well-known recruiter and, you know, was saying, well, this is what I envisioned for myself. And, you know, she looked at what I had been doing and where I wanted to go. And she just said, well, no one's really done this. And that's when I knew, like, I had to do it myself. Um, and so starting Schoolhouse was breaking out of the mold that I had been put in um, of my own expertise, you know, building a platform to connect with entrepreneurs uh, of, you know, brands of a variety of sizes um, to build their vision, um, but also to foster young creative talent, dedicating themselves to beauty day in and day out across a variety of disciplines. Um, and so that's how it all came to be. But I, I never forget those those hands-on moments, those transactional moments in store. And we think about it all the time um, as we're designing packaging, as we're designing retail, because that's, you know, like you said, that's the front line. Yeah, you know, that was an amazing intro. And, you know, I really, <laughs> I, I do think that people who start their career kind of on the front line, unless you've been there day in and day out, it's really hard to sort of create the tools they need to do their job. And at the end of the day, they are the front line. They're, they are the brand in that moment you know, for the consumer. You, you sort of answered, you know, another question I had. And that's you know, many creative agencies work across categories, but Schoolhouse focuses solely on beauty. And obviously that was intentional. Yes, yes. I think kind of to, to jump off of what you were saying originally, when it came, when it, I think one thing that really sets what we do apart is... I've been in the front line in a variety of roles. And so most of the time when we're working with a client, I've either been in their role previously, I've worked in partnership with their role, and there's this real understanding of all of the things that get in the way to getting it done and getting it out there for the consumer. So the front line can take a variety of you know, definitions too as you're looking at you know, trying to deploy a project or a program or even a brand itself. And that focus on beauty, I knew we, I always knew that it needed to be more than one discipline because as a brand, I mean, I obviously I come from working on the brand side. There's no time. You don't have time and you don't have resources. You know, everyone thinks that these large brands have all of these resources when in actuality, everyone's running around like a crazy person, whether you're a brand that's four months old or 40 years old. Um, and so having a, an agency that can do more than one thing, so strategy, branding, packaging, retail, meant we needed to staff for those. It allows our brand partners to sort of tap into and know that they're going to have someone watching a strategy go all the way through the iterations of the design. And I knew that we couldn't do that across multiple industries, you know, to be able to say we specialize in these four 
verticals of capabilities across any industry out there just didn't make sense. And even being focused on beauty and saying we do more than one thing gets eyebrows raised nearly half the time. Um, so, you know, that for me was the first bit. But then the second bit was, it's just where my passion is. You know, I just, we have had organizations approach us and we've even dipped our toes into the waters of other industries. And I just don't personally, my own vision, my own personal vision, it doesn't align. And so it just, the work is not as good because I'm just not as passionate about it and thus not energizing the team to become passionate about it. And, you know, that doesn't also work. Also that work is, because I've done the same thing. Sometimes I'll be, uh, you know, there was, was a period in my career where I just felt like I was burnt out on beauty. And I did mm. a very, very short stint in hospitality and quickly learned I liked being on the other side of that equation, but it wasn't intuitive. Like I wasn't as good at it because I, it, it wasn't intuitive the way beauty is to me. So it made everything so much harder. Yeah. I mean, when you're immersed into something, it becomes second nature and it's not that you become stale, you know, or you're just doing the same thing over and over. It's, you know, where all the roads are. And so you can pave a new path that someone hasn't paved before. Um, and, you know, we get a lot of sort of skepticism around, you know, well, if you're doing this all, you know, you're doing this work for all these beauty brands, what are you, you know, how are you going to make me different? And there's this ideology of, well, I'll, do, I'll go work with someone who designs potato chip packaging and they'll do beauty and it'll be totally different. When in actuality, they know beauty at, you know, the level of a consumer. And so they're probably going to give you ideas that already exist, you know, in the ether of beauty that they don't actually know. Or and fall so, apart in execution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it comes down to legal translations and the wheels fall off. Um, so, uh, you know, being in it day in and day out, it just, you know what's happening and you know how to steer a brand away from where you see another brand kind of going um, or where another brand has gone unsuccessfully before. And that can be across, you know, uh, you know, the positioning of it or the execution of it in, in whatever vertical that that means. Yeah. I mean, I had been a fan of, of the, your work, but you, you are one of my COVID relationships. We met <laughs> sort of in the spring. Um, yeah. We've never met in person, but nope. lots of Zoom calls. And I've had the pleasure of working with you and your team on a project over the past, over past several months. And so I've gotten a firsthand experience kind of about like got the firsthand experience of your process, which I think in many respects is the secret sauce for a creative shop. Um, but what stood out to me is the fact that first and foremost, everything you do, regardless of the touch point is grounded in storytelling, the logo, the packaging, the copy, retail design, they're all developed to play a role in telling a story. Can you share a little bit about how you approach projects and the importance of storytelling? Of course. Um, well, you know, we now that we have been around for a few years, we were able to look back and sort of say, okay, let's look at all the things we've done successfully, unsuccessfully, and, you know, how did we get from the start to the end? And ultimately, we boiled it down to, we always listen intently first, then we go away and we think, you know, intently second, and then we design. 
And so that can be any touch point, but it always means that we are immersing as ourselves as much as possible, understanding the brief in and out, but also the customer, the audience where the brain is gone, been, done, tried, failed, succeeded. Then we sort of, we, we pull it into that story or that platform that allows us to execute and everything kind of continues to stem from that. So it allows conversation, um, you know, creative debate to become objective. You know, we're objectively talking about the work versus if we just come to the table, here's some colors and here's some this and here's, and it's just all subjective. Oh, well, we like this. And, you know, everybody likes pink right now. And then it just becomes, I like pink. I don't like pink. And it's all a subjective debate, which doesn't help anyone. And it doesn't help the work move forward. So that kind of has become this process. So probably what you're feeling is every time we come to the table, we're really clear on the objective. We're really clear in you know, our approach, why that links to the objective, but also links to our you know, definition of success of the project. And then we're designing in and between that. And I think story just naturally has sort of fallen out. Storytelling has fallen out as a descriptor of that. And I come from a lineage of storytellers. My father is a, a novelist. My brother is a comedian and, you know, produces shows for Netflix. My, uh, my mother's a lawyer, so she would say she's not a storyteller, but I absolutely think she is. Um, and it goes, you know, generations past. And so, like, this idea of storytelling is just kind of in my bones. And my original, you know, expression of that, as I said, was as an actor and a performer and, and also as a designer for theater, storytelling with space, which lends itself a lot to the way we approach retail. And I think people mistake storytelling for backstory, you know, like, where did something come from? That's the storytelling. When in actuality, storytelling is, you know, it's cyclical and there's an arc and there's a level of vulnerability and letting people in and this sort of change of perspective that gets you to the, the final stage. And um, that is really how we sort of construct things. And it also, you know, at the end of the day, we're all emotional people and we all engage with story. And so when you're presenting work and you're, you're giving that backstory of how we got there, immediately it becomes identifiable to you. And it just doesn't feel like a design on a piece of paper anymore. I want to kind of switch just a little bit and focus on sort of the purely aesthetic design. And with all creative pursuits, there are trends and there are trends that drive branding. And we see sort of a pendulum shift when we go from one aesthetic to another. And we're living through one of those moments now, I think. You know, we went through sort of what's being dubbed the millennial blanding that became the formula for D to C brands that created kind of this sea of sameness. And now it's given way to this these Gen Z brands with these really big personalities and bold use of color and graphics and kind of a lot of elements that when done well come together in this really kind of busy but exciting experience. It's really hard to pull off well because it goes wrong really fast. <laughs> but I'd love to get your thoughts on the the shift in this sensibility. But I also think one of the things that I find interesting about you guys is that you don't you don't say, oh, that's a schoolhouse design. Like you really sort of internalize what 
your client's brand is and interpret it rather than imprint your style on top of it. Because I don't, I didn't see any blands in your deck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, well, first of all, just as a person, I'm so happy to be getting away from blanding. I think it's just, I'm, I'm more drawn to this younger Gen Z sort of, you know, design on design maximalism, you know, look personally. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm happy to hear you say that because, you know, there's a lot of vulnerabilities with being specific to an industry. And, you know, I spoke about some of them in the upfront and one of them aesthetically is, well, do you just make everything look the same? And ultimately, if you really do the work of listening, thinking, the outcome will be different because the ingredients you're putting in at the very beginning are different. And so that doesn't mean that everything, you know, is not, we're not taking into consideration the audience that we're speaking to and what they're drawn to, et cetera. But also brands are more than just packaging. Brands are more than a homepage. You know, you have to really build out a system that has layers and levels that you can dial up or dial down to whom you're speaking. Um, And we've had an opportunity to do a lot of work internationally and blanding in China is not what is successful. You know, it's just very different and same with India. And so it's just, it's a very narrow minded kind of look at beauty and what works. And I think unfortunately, a lot of brands have gotten stuck in that trap where all of a sudden they're trying to pitch to a retailer or they're trying to garner attention and there's nothing differentiating about them. And unfortunately, no matter how great your product is, if it's not aesthetically you know, developed as well as your product has been developed, then it just won't be successful. Just like the product won't be successful on skin, hair, body, you know, whatever you're, you're targeting. So we really try to understand kind of what is coming out of that funnel for the brand um, and make it unique, make it ownable, make it identifiable. Um, and I think honestly, a lot of that has to come from, comes from this LVMH way of working that I got you know, in the building of Fresh during really pivotal time periods. And Fresh was hugely successful um, and is not you know, a part of that blanding culture in any, you know, any way. Um, but there's parts and pieces of it that fit perfectly. You know, the primary packaging is all white and really clean, but the secondary is fully expressive. And then the environment and world it lives in is even more expressive. So not everything is dialed down. You know, it's those layers and levels that have to appear in the right place at the right time. And if you, you know, are a, a millennial and you want that super minimalistic, clean shelfie, fresh is right there. Um, and if you want a really cool layered, you know, moment of discovery in retail, fresh is also right there. Um, and so I think that that training, you know, has also uh, changed how we approach things uh, at the agency. You know, I also think during that that kind of that millennial that millennial moment, it also felt like the desi- the the brands themselves were a little one dimensional, and it was all about speed to market. And people weren't going, or I found at least, people weren't going through that traditional 
full exploration of the brand. It's kind of, you know, I know, you know, when I was doing a lot of creative work, I'd have people are like, I want to build like the next Chanel. You know, you need <laughs> to have people want to having the desire to build a heritage brand. It was mm. much more, I want to be a beauty unicorn. How fast can I do it? And, mm. you know, there was this moment where I was like, you know what, maybe I'm just showing my age and maybe this is just the way brands are going to be. And then the coronavirus came and all of a sudden heritage brands were were kind of killing it where they weren't mm-hmm. before. But mm-hmm. they had this robust tool set that they could rely on. Um, mm-hmm. Where I think some of these other brands were like, our formula doesn't work anymore. What do we do? Mm. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's this, I think it's this sort of finite mindset versus infinite mindset. And if you are, you know, ultimately building a brand, there's no end, you know, it, it doesn't stop. You don't one day wake up and say, oh, it's done. You know, we're, we're done now. Um, it, it, it's a continuum. It's change. It's evolution. I mean, I all, this is an overused statement, but brands are like people, you know, they, they have to evolve. They have to change because naturally you're learning more about yourself as a brand. And also you have different people now in the brand as an influence of that. And you have different, you know, external partnerships. So I think where heritage brands that are successful have been kind of thinking is that infinite mindset, you know, it's, they've had to pivot and change so many times that, doing it again, you know, is an exciting challenge versus a, what are we going to do moment? Yeah. I think there was, you know, maybe the past, I don't know, call it five, six years, heritage brands were sort of underestimated. They were almost thought of as a liability. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm such a branding geek. I have such a soft spot for heritage brands and kind of the people that run them and nourish them and love them. So yeah. You know, I'm happy to see sort of that resurgence. Why do you think um, that was, Kelly? Where, why do you think people were thinking of heritage brands in that way? I think because there was this moment where, um, where kind of legacy brands were burdened by the legacy and they mm-hmm. weren't perceived as being as nimble or as relevant and they felt a little... Um, disconnected from the consumer. And I think a lot of brands got caught flat-footed kind of mm-hmm. in this in this short period of time of this kind of digitization of everything and the emergence of social media. But yes. I don't think that's the case anymore. I mean, look at what L'Oreal is doing on the technology front. It's like, incredible. I, you know, I think there are, or brands like Erno Laszlo that has been completely kind of reinvigorated, not much more so in Asia than here, but, um, you know, or even Dr. Dennis Gross, you know, it's a 20 year old brand that is like the hottest thing in skincare right now, you know? (laughs) So, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it was this moment of time where maybe they got caught a little flat footed, but now I think in so many ways they're, they're set up to kind of get through this moment in a way that some of these younger brands aren't. Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, I feel like 
I, I, I enjoy working with heritage brands just as much as I do with independent, you know, startup brands. Um, and with heritage brands, I mean, I'm a person who loves a challenge and getting things done quickly um, is, is a challenge, you know, when you have a larger organization and there's, you know, more regional teams and, you know, more people to include. So for me, that's exciting. Um, and when you get, when you get something through and you're successful, you know, it's almost like passing a new form of legislator, like, you know, it's just like, how did we do that? You know, we've got everyone joining together. We've got everyone agreeing. Um, so yeah, I, I'm excited by, by the success that, that some of them are seeing. Yeah. But I also think all of a sudden, these brands, these new brands that are emerging that are tackling really difficult problems like, you know, circularity or reinventing a kind of supply chain and refillables, they're having to do that kind of traditional brand work to to be able to tell these complicated stories. So I think the pendulum has kind of swung back to kind of doing that due diligence before you launch again. Yeah, I mean, I think you always have to step back and reevaluate. And I think where where we saw a few years ago a lot of fumbling with the heritage brands is because there was a lot of, you know, the the tenets of success hadn't really been challenged. You know, we had, you know, the way that we launched a product, we had a hero visual that got plastered everywhere. We didn't have to think about anything beyond that. And and now all of a sudden it's different. And so being able to, you know, react and respond to that, um, I think is now being baked into those cultures and there's more awareness to it, which makes them even more, you know, uh, viable for ongoing success. At Beauty Matter, we're committed to leveraging the platform we've built and the community we've nurtured to help make change happen. Our first impact partner is the Eco Soap Bank a global humanitarian nonprofit that's saving lives by rescuing, recycling, and redistributing soap to communities that otherwise lack essential hygiene. Eco Soap Bank is quite literally changing the world, one recycled bar of soap at a time. As an industry, we can help them empower women and fight preventable disease. It's time to get involved. Learn more about partnership opportunities and the global impact a bar of soap can have by visiting ecosoapbank.org. I want to make sure that we really dive into retail because retail design is a big part of your practice, but it's also something that you guys do so well. You create sort of these experiences that are kind of a culmination of little moments and everything is thought through every turn every experience every sort of finish you know you did I, I think it was La Mer that kind of big pop-up in yes. China that was kind of unbelievable and then you've also um worked with oh the Indian um retailer. my glam yes Yes. And, you know, what's going on in India is crazy. There's this yeah. whole retail explosion by the, well, the rest of the world is like, oh, what's retail going to look like? I know. They're actually doing it. They're showing you what it's yeah. going to look like. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I just love working on retail projects as, as much as I do the you know, strategy and, and building brands and rebuilding brands. And 
Um, you know, when it comes to retail, I think it's one of the most challenging things inside of an organization to actually execute. You know, it's physical. You know, it's not like designing something, you know, in digital that you can like easily update, adapt, change. You know, when you put something physical into the world, one, there's a lot of capital expenditure that goes into it. Two, there's maintenance, there's logistics. I mean, it's there's a lot of reasons why not to do it, to be very honest. Um, so when you do it and you get to do it well and you really get to transport people, for me, that is just so magical. And, you know, I always when we're doing it, it's 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 like designing it's like designing for Disney World, you know, that's how we try to do it. And it's not to say that everything's over the top, but it's it's that it's it's experiential in every facet. And you really have to pull each part apart, really put them through the lens of that brand and then put them back together. Um, and so from the moment that you're greeted to the moment that you check out, um, everything should really feel cohesive, different, differentiated. And obviously everyone talks about Apple. And I think that's really what they did is they pulled every part of the retail experience apart. They redefined it in their own way. Um, they got rid of things they knew they knew they wouldn't need. They added new things that they knew, you know, exemplified their purpose. And then they put it back together. Um, and so it's not about architecture. You know, it, architecture is a part of that. Um, but it's really about what is the story of the space? I mean, it, it, it's it's there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. There's, you know, when you, there is a sitemap version of retail design, um, there are wireframes and versions of that in retail design. All of that is a, is important and a part of it. Um, but there's also the intangibles. And I think that's where, you know, we do a really good job of like, okay, what do we want people to feel when they're in this space? And, that's not something that you know can easily be uncovered without really being brand people first. Um, and you know, when we're working with these brands on retail, we we always talk about this is a brand first experience. This is not a design first experience. Um, ultimately, that's why it's retail design, not you know, uh, commercial or corporate office design. So, what do you think is beauty retail is going to look post COVID? I mean, you know, some elements of kind of the retail landscape were broken. I mean, department stores have been broken for so long. But the idea, the, the kind of the dramatic changes that would have had that needed to happen were so financially risky, no one would go there. And yeah. I feel and tester units, they've been disgusting for a long time. When were they <laughs> ever a good idea? But who was gonna say, you know, we're not gonna have a tester unit? And now all of a sudden there's this window, and it is a window, it's going to close, to redefine what that experience is. And some of it's being redefined for us because of hygiene and um, social distancing and that type of thing. But it is this moment to rethink how we interact with the consumer at retail and what those expectations are. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, yeah, you're right. Like tester units. I mean, I have, I can't tell you how many lipsticks I have shaved in my career in beauty um, just to clean the tester units. Um, so, you know, seeing them all shrink wrapped right now is a, it's, it's a scary thing. Um, I, I believe personally, at the end of the day, people love doing things. And so why are people leaving New York? There's nothing to do, you know, yes. and like, 
people love to do things. And why is the the count and, and challenge of coronavirus so big in America? Because people don't want to stop doing things. They want to keep doing the things that they always did. So I don't, you know, all of these hypotheses of, you know, it's going to change and it's a huge departure. I don't think it's true. I mean, at the end of the day, we all want to be closer to what we used to define as normal. And so retail is just a part of that. And will people walk in and want to put on, you know, eyeshadow from a pan that someone else has used? Yeah, probably. Um, and that's probably, that's the challenge that we've had in this country with sort of the virus itself. Um, so I think the things that functionally are different is that I feel, I feel like people will want to have more autonomous experiences. So self-shopping, you know, being able to walk in, not have to pay and touch money and credit card machines and all that kind of stuff, being able to grab what you need, walk out, know it'll charge you immediately, you know, things like that, that just make it easier for you that that's better. But I think ultimately people want to get out, do things, experience things. Um, and, you know, brands have been entertaining individuals throughout this entire pandemic. So we, it's our job to get out and entertain once everyone's out of the pandemic or kind of wanting to get out of it. And retail and physical experience and physical space is a huge role in that. Um, so I think it's, I think what will be a little bit different is we've all felt culturally things have changed. Conversations have bubbled to the surface that we've often ignored or have ignored for many, many years. And how do these spaces sort of take into account the emotional and behavioral mindset of people? And I think the idea that just, you know, everything becomes like an Amazon locker where, you know, physical spaces are just grab and grow, go areas. I, I don't think that's a true existence for retail um, and for branded physical spaces. I think that's just a part of it for the efficiency, but I see something way more emotionally driven in the future than what we've done in the past. I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that we're also going to see maybe a return to kind of that old school retail where there's a sense of community and conversations. And listen, I think we all want to like go out and have a conversation with stranger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I, and I think you're right. I mean, I feel like, you know, the strategy of distribution within your own brick and mortar probably will change a lot. You know, it's not going to be about roll, roll, scale, scale. You know, it's, it's probably going to be more about how can we really create jewels of conversation that are physical in form that continuously evolve and change just as much as, you know, how we can evolve and change in digital. And that might mean that we have less, but you get exponentially more from what you have. I also think one of the things, you know, everyone is focusing on this rapid adoption of technology and the mainstreaming of trends. But one of the things that I found kind of the most hopeful is that the beauty advisor or that front frontline retail person has become the connection between physical mm. and digital and they have become sort of the superstars of this moment whereas before they were kind of dismissed and it was influencers and it was you know the latest kind of tech gimmick now the technology is being built around them to give them the tools 
to actually flourish in that role. And I think the opportunity around that, you know, tech, tech powered human connection is what's going to be the most exciting thing about retail on the other side of this. I love that. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and gosh, it's really been a long time coming for these individuals. You know, I, I, I've always struggled with the fact that retail specifically, I think in, in the U S is looked down upon as a career path when I actually think it is. I mean, I have seen, obviously that's how I started, but I've seen people working in retail that honestly love it and get so much from it and get to meet so many amazing people, but also get to impact so many amazing people. I mean, you really are, you really are the ones that are living the truth of that brand human to human right then and there. And, you know, I I feel like the fact that we're sort of deeming them essential now to brands being successful and we've sort of raised them up to say, wow, you actually are the conversation starter of our brand because you're the one having the conversations. I think it's such a long time coming and I hope that that doesn't go away. And to your point, I hope we arm them with technology or physical spaces that make that transactional, transformational experience they're giving easier for them. Um, I agree. Let's make it happen, Chris, you and me. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll end up back as a greeter somewhere. <laughs> so I have one last, and I'm going to say selfish question. So <laughs> what do you do when you have a creative block? And more importantly, how do you help your team through those moments? Because it's hard to be creative all the time and have to do it on demand. Yeah. Well, especially right now when you can't see anybody. You know, we've, I mean, you said at the very beginning, we've never even met each other in person, which is crazy to me. Um, But we've, we've done so many projects. I mean, we've started and ended projects throughout the pandemic, very large scale projects without ever meeting once the team that we were partnering with. So doing that and creating the work with our team without seeing each other has definitely been a challenge. For me, I, I think it's always about sort of stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, you know, when you're stuck in the weeds and you're trying to kind of get through weed to weed, it's, it's extremely challenging to sort of even understand, well, what, what am I trying to, where am I trying to go with this? And the ability to sort of step back and look at the larger vision and, and even look at, you know, adjacent visions that could help and make sense to inspire you for me always makes sense. So an example is, you know, we were working with L'Occitane and we've done a variety of flagship concepts with them. And, you know, each time that we've been asked to do one, it's like the pressure goes up because you're like, well, gosh, now what are we going to do? You know, I started thinking about cooking and the fact that restaurants, you know, have a limited set of ingredients, but make these incredible cuisines, incredible experiences inside incredible environments. And so I started watching The Chef's Table on Netflix and there's a, a restaurant in Chicago called Alinea, and it's just all about this abstraction of, you know, the, the food experience. And that's what lent to the concept that we created for L'Occitane and their Yorkdale experience. We called it the sense of wonderment. And it was this abstraction of, you know, what it means to experience beauty. And so we look to a variety of inspirations then within Provence to serve up product experience. So 
rain shower sink so you can experience shower gels, um, bistro bars where you're cranking out similar to espresso, but you're cranking out moisturizer and serums. And so kind of stepping back and looking at adjacent categories for me is always super helpful. And, you know, getting out and experiencing things also is, is extremely helpful, even though that's challenging right now, you know, there's so much content where you don't even have to leave your living room to experience a variety of specialties and, and places in the world. Um, but I think the more that you can really step back, look at the greater picture, you know, understand and re you know, remind yourself the briefing at the beginning, the definition of success at the end, where you are in that process. Generally, something for me always happens or as a team will sort of say, you know what, I think we need to pull out of this parking spot we're trying to get into and maybe find the next one that feels a little bit more correct for us. Is there, um, cause you know, I'm always, obs I'm obsessed with finding random sources of kind of inspiration <laughs> and information, but is there a place where, you know, you're just kind of blown away by kind of the, the creativity or just kind of get your juices flowing that is kind of outside the beauty world? Yeah. I've, I've actually really fallen in love with, I don't know if you know, uh, the Brene Brown, she's a you know, a speaker and she does a lot of leadership training. She has a few podcasts and she talks a lot about, she talks a lot about leadership and, you know, things like that. And, and honestly, on a personal level, you know, I've gone through a lot this year, you know, trying to manage a small business through a pandemic. You know, I, I lost a relationship. I've, you know, my family is nowhere near me. I'm, you know, now in Manhattan alone. It's just, there's been a lot that has happened. And I looked, I found her and, you know, her first thing that she talks in her first book is all about vulnerability. There was something about that that struck me and always I'm relating it back to the work that we're doing. I just thought, you know, what brands need to be doing more of is being more vulnerable. Like, you know, all of the things that happen that's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement with, you know, um, the pandemic and by pretending that you have the answer by sort of saying, oh, yes, I know what to do versus sort of being vulnerable, letting down your guard and saying, you guys have to help me, guide me, have a conversation and sort of say, I don't know, but I want to figure it out and I need your help. I think that is so powerful. And so it, there's these little things in like even personal self-discovery, self-betterment, leadership, self-betterment that I've immediately started connecting to how brands can be better as leaders of their community. So I've, I've really been enjoying her podcasts and her books and, you know, constantly mining for inspiration on how we lead brands through really hard times and hard conversations to have. Well, I, not what I was expecting, but I'm going to check it out. <laughs> You're like, I thought you would just give me a, a URL to a blog that I didn't know about. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I, okay. It's going to make me actually work really hard, but I'm going to check it out anyway. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, it's hard. It's so many, the industry, we're constantly talking about what's happening in food, what's happening over here. I mean, so when I found that for myself, you know, I just thought, gosh, this is so similar to what a lot of the brands that I know we're working with are trying to get through and how to be more truthful, which obviously allows more connection and more belonging, which leads to more community, which, you know, that's that word that we always love to talk about when it comes to brand building today.
Well, Chris, I could spend all afternoon speaking to you, <laughs> but you know, maybe we'll just have to do a part two. I don't know. I know we'll have to do a part two. Well, I, Kelly, thank you so much. I, I truly appreciate it. And I appreciate what you're doing for our industry and, um, and you know, the, the brands big and small that you put a spotlight on and those that you allow to share your platform with you. So, you know, I thank you on behalf of all of us that you're supporting. Oh, that's so kind. I mean, it is, you know, if you had asked me even five years ago, if I would be, you know, running a content platform, I would have told you I was crazy because I build and run brands, but yet here I am <laughs> on the on some other side of the equation, but I do love it. So thank you for those kind words. Thank you. Yeah. All right. And, you know, on the other side of this, we will meet in person. <laughs> yes. We'll have to, I'll have to not upload a photo to your Instagram, the Beauty Matter official Instagram. Exactly. Of us finally meeting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Chris, thank you. Thanks, Kelly. For Christopher, it's a matter of storytelling. And Christopher Skinner and his team craft and tell compelling stories. But it's the culture of kindness, openness, and empathy, and a deep intuitive understanding of the beauty category that differentiates Schoolhouse. The generalized specialist studio is narrowly focused on beauty, but wide in its capabilities, enabling Schoolhouse to help brands tackle more, faster. Today's constantly changing beauty landscape requires the ability to build branded experiences that craft layered narratives, making every moment, small or large, from beginning to end, memorable. Digitally, physically, and everything in between, creating frictionless, immersive experiences that support brand narratives and meet consumers where they are with content and products they want when they want it. So in the end, it's a matter of storytelling. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, I'm Christopher Skinner. And to me, what matters is storytelling. Because at the end of the day, storytelling allows us to connect emotionally and everyone can identify with a story. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, you can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.